Hi everyone and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rorkraut. And today we have our second award season check-in. We will be discussing two movies, Rustin and Saltburn. Both are out now. Rustin is on Netflix and Saltburn is out limited in theaters and will be expanding November 22nd. Another eclectic mix with these two movies. Yeah, two more awardsy films that couldn't be more different. And it's weird even putting these together. It's really just because of the release date. But I think there's so many aspects from audience to the way they're made to their screenplays that are so different. I don't remember the last time we've talked about two movies on a single pod that were like this. I don't know why I'm like speechless <laughs> yeah. about it either. I know. It is sort of a strange combination of movies and I think both have great performances that we'll we'll definitely talk about especially from their lead actors and I think that both you know defy expectations in certain ways and I think it's interesting to think about how they might appear in this year's award season I think on paper one is certainly more academy friendly than the other but at the same time like Saltburn definitely has gotten a lot of attention and has its devoted supporters. So yeah, I'm excited to see how both of these play out this year. Yeah, I think and that's why is because they're both good movies. They're both going to be well received by at least some of the population. But to put them together and to try to compare them, which we obviously don't have to do, is where I start to stumble. So I guess just let's get into Rustin and we can talk about them separately. So <laughs> Rustin description here, Bayard Rustin, advisor to Martin Luther King Jr., dedicates his life to the quest for racial equality, human rights, and worldwide democracy. However, as an openly gay black man, he has all but erased from the civil rights movement he has helped build. This was directed by George C. Wolfe. It stars Coleman Domingo. Chris Rock, Glenn Turman, Jeffrey Wright, and more. Like you mentioned, this is on Netflix, so go watch it there if it's not playing in theaters nearby. Awards so far, this will be receiving the icon and creator tribute for social justice at the Gotham Awards, and it won the Mill Valley Audience Award and for directing for Wolf at that festival. So what are your thoughts on Rustin? I really enjoyed Rustin. I think that, you know, at first glance, it can appear to be a rather conventional biopic. It's not doing many different things in terms of how it's presenting the story of Bayard Rustin. However, I do think it's very enjoyable. It's a It has a tight runtime. It does not drag and dwell on things that a lot of these biopics do where they feel like they need to go through every single detail on a Wikipedia page. That is not what this movie is. It's a very moving portrait of a person and of the most important things that this person achieved in his life. And I think that the most successful thing about the film is Coleman Domingo's performance. I was very moved by it. And I think that a lot of times with these movies, when we talk about biopics around Oscar season and, oh, this person transformed into this famous person or oh, they're playing a real person, they're going to ham it up, and it's going to be very over the top. That's not what this is. I think that there are some louder moments from the character, but there are also a lot of quieter, more interior moments about his struggle, and that was something that I 
yeah, felt very moved by and really connected with and watching it. So, yeah, I think that if you're going to watch this movie, Coleman Domingo's performance is the key reason really to do so because I left the film not just learning more about who Bayard Rustin was as a person, but I think feeling just really inspired by um, what this movie had to say and how George C. Wolfe wanted to tell that story too. What about you? I had a similar knowledge going in of not knowing who this person was or his importance, but hearing the story that is being told about him and realizing that he was really the starting point and the idea maker for the March on Washington was revelatory to see his mind work and the way he collaborated and brought on people to help him was just so inspiring. And that is the story of Bayard Rustin. He did so much for his community and for the people of this country, whether or not they treated him fairly. And I mean that in terms of being a gay man, but also as being a black man growing up in the 60s, where later on you see footage of people being hosed by police. So this was such a contentious time, but to see his spirit persist throughout and in being portrayed by Coleman Domingo, it brought me to tears at certain moments just to see how he reacted or his delivery. And that is part of the idea of a conventional biopic is to show the brighter side to a character and to really rally behind them, i.e. Nyad in our discussion (laughs) on that episode. But I also agree in that Coleman Domingo's just giving a phenomenal performance at first you know you're kind of taken aback he's doing this accent and again I hadn't seen footage of Rustin before and didn't really know his character but you get to learn so much about him throughout this movie and you know he's missing a tooth and he goes through that story and that he was beaten sitting on a bus in protest in the front and you get to feel so much for this character And that's in part due to his story, but also in how Domingo is portraying him. So I left this movie very positive on it. And I really like the direction. I think the script really blew me away. It was written by Julian Brees. This is his first feature film. And Dustin Lance Black, who won original screenplay for Milk. And I think the collaboration between Wolf and Black, there was a QA and a after the movie. And he talked about wanting to showcase that person and feeling like it was necessary to continue showing the history of these extraordinary people with Bayard Rustin. And there are so many lines that, you know, hearing Wolf talk about who Rustin was that are so poetic and sharp, and that's apparently how he spoke. So I think they get his diction and his attitude so right in the script, which really elevated the entire story and movie for me. Circling back, though, a little bit, really even before the movie starts, we get this intro by former President Obama. And I was like, oh my my gosh, I didn't know if that was a part of the movie or just like something (laughs) they were including before select screenings. But it is. I mean, it's a surprise and in a good way. You just think, whoa, okay, this movie is important. It has, and yes, it's produced by Higher Ground, mm-hmm. um, Barack and Michelle's production company. But wow, just hearing him come on beforehand, it really is just, again, a reminder. And 
him telling you like this is a really important story and he has mm-hmm. been also like on the campaign trail for this movie he's Amazing. been introducing it at screenings so yeah i mean once we get to when we get to our awards conversation that's definitely something to think about there's a line in his intro where he says you may not know Bayard rustin but you should and i think his charisma mirrors rustin's really well but it's like okay yeah i think i should you know i'm excited for this movie now (laughs) so it's Mm -hmm. it is a funny but also strong way to intro the film yeah i hope that that's on netflix too i'll have to (laughs) play it and see but i'm sure it will be Uh um because it really is a good a good way to to open up the film but i think yeah there is something to rustin that is similar to Obama now that you say it in just the the charisma and this very vibrant personality. And Coleman Domingo, I think just talking about his performance again, he, what I really love about him in this movie also, so much of it is in the lead up to the March on Washington. So I love the moments of him just gathering people and organizing and putting everything together. And you really, I think you see his circle expand and how his relationships deepen and also just become more interesting and how people even people on the inside of his circle are threatened by Rustin and push back against his sexuality that's another part of the story that I didn't know before watching this movie and one of those people was Martin Luther King and Adam Clayton Powell Jr. who Jeffrey Wright plays and I also think that Jeffrey Wright is great in this movie. He's so good in this, like, villain role. So I think, yeah, even though Coleman Domingo's performance is the standout for me in terms of the acting, there are a number of great performances in the movie that, again, make it worth watching. It is a wonderful cast. I will also shout out Divine Joy Randolph, who is in The Holdovers, but she is also here in a small role that I really liked. Going back to MLK, who's played by Amal Amin. That relationship is interesting because at one point in the movie, there's a rumor that they had hooked up before, and that causes Rustin to resign from the NAACP. So that's part of the March on Washington and in him getting support because there's this friction between that organization and him and that history. But He's still trying to rally people from all over the country to come for this 100,000 person two day event. You know, he always wanted it to be a two day event. And there's also pushback about that. But yeah, it does such a great job of explaining what this event became and how powerful that was for what he wanted to accomplish and his movement. But I think Coleman portraying him. As a gay man, playing a gay man, he understands something about his person that, you know, you see him being defied or ridiculed time and again, and he still keeps this positive attitude, which is something that by the end of the movie, you truly believe in. The final moment of him, it's not really a final shot, but George C. Wolf was saying, like, Rustin read the March demands in Washington, but they don't include that in the movie because he found a more poetic ending to show his character, which really does further who he is during the movie. So I really liked that, you know, even though 
he was so important to this march. We don't necessarily see everything that happened, but his spirit is still so vibrant and present in all of these moments. I completely agree. And I love that story from George Seawolf. I love those little details like that of why directors make certain choices. And I feel like that one is just a really nice one when you're thinking about the type of person that Bayard Rustin was, but also the the version of that person or the type of story that Wolf wanted to tell. So as far as awards potential goes, what do you think for this one? The big one is Coleman Domingo, obviously. When we do our Oscar contenders, I'm already going to say that I think he should win. It is a wow. bold statement, but it's a rare occurrence for me that when I see him, like when I saw Parasite, I was like, this should win. This is my favorite movie of the year. It's the easiest feeling when you're experiencing a movie like that. And with his performance, there are just either moments where the camera lingers on him and he's reacting to something or he's dealing with flashbacks in his head and, you know, fears that he has in being this prominent character now. And in some of those moments, I just fully believed in Coleman Domingo and realized that what he was doing with his accent and demeanor and portraying this character, I was all in. So I am really, really hoping that he gets in and it would just be, it would be a huge deal if he were to win. In terms of the other actors, I don't necessarily see like Chris Rock. He's a huge character as Roy Wilkins getting in or Amin as MLK Jr., I do really like Glenn Turman. He was such a big character in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Wolf's other big feature recently. But the other big categories that I would see for this are original screenplay, which again is really sharp. It is another tough category that I don't know if it can get in, but it should be considered. And then the other one is score, which... Wolf, during the Q&A, also mentioned the composer, Branford Marsalis, and how they use this really jazzy score throughout the movie, especially to show New York City. And then by the end, when we're in D.C., the score kind of transforms into this symphonic sound that was also giving this Americana feel. But I kind of felt at times that the jazz was almost like farcical in how it was reactionary to the characters and the story Mm -hmm. and how it was kind of used in transitions it does remind me of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and I think you know for the 60s it was the right kind of music to use and I do like it but it almost took me out in moments like when Rustin is running away and the jazz is like really strong in the background but I think those components for me were the highlights Yeah, and I think even like on the music, the direction is very theatrical in certain moments like that, where I think it does feel a bit over the top. Um, And the music is, yeah, like you said, a part of that. I think in terms of nominations, I think that original song, Road to Freedom by Lenny Kravitz, that can definitely happen. Your pick from the fantasy draft. (laughs) Yes. I heard it at the end. I was like, oh my God, I'm ready. Is is it a winner? (laughs) You're ready for Road to Freedom. Um, (laughs) But I think that Coleman Domingo can absolutely get into Best Actor. It is really tight this year. That is true. I think because, you know, we have 
a number of contenders in really big movies. You know, you have Bradley Cooper and Maestro, who is campaigning. Um, You have Leonardo DiCaprio for Killers of the Flower Moon. You have Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer. If American Fiction is a big deal, Jeffrey Wright could get in. Paul Giamatti for The Holdovers. I mean, there are just so many people. But I think this performance is right in the Academy's wheelhouse. And Coleman Domingo, now that he can be out on the campaign trail, he is so charming and charismatic and fun. Like The way that he is in interviews and how he talks to people and just he seems like he livens up any room. That's a skill that can't necessarily be taught or trained that he has that can, I think, you know, push him into that group for sure. And if he has Obama campaigning for him, I think he can definitely get a nomination. I don't know about a win. It's it's way too early to say, but it's definitely a deserving nomination. I really liked the performance a lot. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? My Oscar would definitely be Best Actor for Coleman Domingo. I think that it is his movie. I, I think the performance has so many layers to it. He has some great speeches, and I love watching those moments in the movie. But then he also, like I said earlier, has you know these deeper, more personal reckonings. And I think it's really hard to pull off all of that. And what I love about his performance is that you can really believe who this person was as a real-life person, as a three-dimensional character, as someone who built people up, who was opinionated and charismatic, and also who was able to really bring all of these people to action. So I would definitely say Coleman Domingo. What about you? I would also give my Oscar to Coleman. He commands your attention on screen. But like you said, this isn't just his movie. It's about Rustin and his legacy. And I can't believe I'm mentioning this movie twice in this episode already. But the way that Diana Nyad at the end of the movie (laughs) says how important her team was for her to accomplish this feat is the same way that Rustin is in this movie. It's not only him, it's about the people around him, and that's how he tells his story, and that's also why I really like the movie, that you can learn so much about a person, but also the direction shows that it wasn't just him, and that he's proud of everything he's built so that he could pass it on to the next generation. So I think Coleman is doing a lot in this performance, and I loved it. Okay, it's time to go to Saltburn. Description here, struggling to find his place at Oxford University, Oliver Quick finds himself drawn into the world of the charming and aristocratic Felix Catton, who invites him to Saltburn, his eccentric family's sprawling estate for a summer never to be forgotten. This was directed by Emerald Fennell in her follow-up to Promising Young Woman. It stars Barry Keoghan as Oliver, Jacob Elordi as Felix, Rosamund Pike, Alison Oliver, and Richard E. Grant. This won the Audience Award at the Savannah Film Festival. It's funny that this movie can win Audience Awards because I think that it's definitely going to, you know, divide people. But I think that the people who are going to love it will really love it. And I think other people will be repulsed by it. And I think that is the movie's strength, honestly. And I am in the love camp. I was shocked that I really loved it because I didn't love Promising Young Woman. But this was totally different for me. 
I mean, it is very much a me movie in a lot of ways with the setting and everything like that. But yeah, I really, really enjoyed it and think it's one of the most interesting movies of the year and definitely one that will be one of the most talked about for sure. I think I was also surprised that you loved it so much, but more in, I guess, the composition or the way it's told and kind of the genre that it sits in. It's more of the structure of the movie and not certain details, because I think you can love the details. I mean, it's Jacob Elordi, it's Academy nominee Barry Keoghan, it's Rosamund Pike. I mean, you have all of these things that really do work. And I mean, yes, you love like a period piece or British Elizabethan settings. Gothic, anything. Exactly. Yeah. And you've mentioned also about like education settings and, you know, they're at Oxford. So there are so many elements that really are great on paper. And I love the Fennell effect to her movies. And I think this almost millennial Gen Z hybrid of not only who she's catering to, but the cinematography, for example, of like having club scenes, kind of Mm -hmm. like how Promising Young Woman starts and all of the music, her soundtracks, pristine, but then also including really dark elements of murder or blood in instances, which we can talk (laughs) about and revenge, all of these things that really do come together in such a fun way. I think this movie is great for groups of friends. Go see it opening weekend. I'm really curious what the box office is going to be for something like this. Yeah. Because it does definitely appeal to a younger audience, I would say. Yeah, I can see that. I do want to ask you, why were you so surprised that I liked it? Maybe we can start there. I mean, after Telluride, you were raving, and you just don't rave about movies that often. Apart from, like, Maestro, which I expected you to. I mean, I've had a lot of movies I've liked this year, though. I do think part of it was, like, you know, seeing it there with her introducing it. I didn't hear anything about it. So I was one of the few people who got to go in fully Mm -hmm. blind. None of these tweets about, like, this is the craziest movie I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. This is going to blow your mind. Like, I didn't hear any of that going into it. I had no clue. The bar was low, frankly. I just knew that it had Oxford and Jacob Elordi, and I was happy to be seated in the theater. So I think that the fact that my anticipation wasn't sky high for it, I didn't know much going in. I hadn't even watched the teaser, so I had no clue, even about the look of the movie. So I think that definitely helped. And again, just like watching it with that crowd, when certain things happen in this movie, it was just fun to see people squirm in their seats or to think about when people would walk out. Like, we just don't get many movies that do that anymore. And I'm not always a proponent of, like, shock cinema. I think there are plenty of plenty of movies that have very empty shock scenes. But I love the ones in this movie, some of them just because of what they're saying about what it feels like to be obsessed with someone. That's such an interesting idea. And mm-hmm. it's also very gothic And, you know, I studied Gothic literature for so long and taught it. So, again, it's just my, it's totally my thing. I guess another part to being surprised was in the movie's influences, because there are a lot of aspects that 
have already been done. And Fennel is good enough to know how to make it her own while still pulling from previous works like Talented Mr. Ripley, which you mentioned before. You mentioned another one, too. It's very Brideshead Revisited. That's the big one. Yeah, yeah. And there are certain images in the movie that evoke other movies like you know they have this big garden maze like from the shining and i think certain shots of capturing it definitely mirror how kubrick did but then there's also this obsession with 2000s american culture and movies like super bad mm-hmm. or the ring and it's interesting that she does this because super bad didn't come out until after this time and the song low didn't either well i would like to clarify something with this Uh about english people so this is 2007 so when you see class of 2006 that's the that's the starting year that's when the movie takes place that's not the graduation the summer is 2007 i guess either way it's kind of interesting then how we're playing with time because it doesn't feel like that much time has passed when we come to campus and then they become friends and then sort of not friends, and then we get to Saltburn a year later? That feels like so much time. I'm not questioning you. I'm just like... No, no, I know. I'm just like, to lay out the timeline, he doesn't really he doesn't really get to know Felix for a while. Because if we remember, he doesn't know him at the beginning, then he's not invited to the Christmas party. So he, theoretically, doesn't really meet and connect with Felix until, like, springtime. Which is not that much time. But again, but Felix, the Jacob Elordi character, is so just like his sister Venetia says, oh, I like you better than last year. It's mm-hmm. like he always does this. He always like brings around this little pet. And it's clear that like he, he loves this sort of attention and he is that type of person who just, he is like the Jude Law character in Ripley in a way, but he's also different. I mean, they're not exact replicas of each other and neither is Barry Keoghan for Ripley either, but... Yeah, I think that for someone like Felix, even though he's so rich, I mean, these people have a level of wealth that is just totally unattainable and inaccessible. He's so charming and he's able to weaponize that charm to get what he wants. And he likes that sort of attention. And of course, Oliver is so drawn into that world because this boy is like Jacob Elordi is beautiful in this movie. And the way that Lena Sandgren, the cinematographer and emerald Vanell capture him it is like he is a model in a perfume ad it's like zendaya in dune but purposeful and more successful in the way that it's used and because it says something more about the character and yeah i feel like i don't know the passage of time itself doesn't really bother me because we that's kind of how things happen i think when you're that age too and you're in a close environment like you just become close quickly And Oliver becomes obsessed with Felix so fast because he represents an unattainable world. But he also, I mean, he looks like that. There are so many reasons why you would be obsessed with someone like that. But yeah, that's why he gets pulled in. And the time spent at Saltburn is more interesting than the Oxford days. I could have spent more time at Oxford. I love Dark Academia. The whole movie could have been set there. But yeah, I think we had to kind of speed things up so that we could get to the summer. And it was important, mm-hmm. I think, to see who Oliver is as a person. And maybe that's a little thin. I don't know. Yeah, I do like the intro and in being at Oxford and kind of getting to see him in this uneasy place where, 
he doesn't feel accepted or doesn't find friends easily. Farley, who is Felix's cousin, is such an asshole to him. And I mm-hmm. think that's in part why Felix is so nice to him. Or maybe it's the other way around, but... Yeah, I think it's part of it. I think Felix also just, like, knows what he's doing. He knows what he can, like, when he's nice to people or when he includes them. I think he knows how that makes people feel. Yeah, and I think this is so heartbreaking when we see Ollie join Felix's group. And at the same time, he kind of shuns away that other guy who is trying to be friends with him, the, like, super nerd that kid was he's so annoying though (laughs) good for you oliver cut him loose oh yeah i mean that's how we feel but it is so backwards in seeing that the opposite is being done at the same time well and i think talking about the years and thinking about 2006 2007 and that time what i like about it i do like the opening framing device of an Oliver, a Barrick Yogan from the present, looking back on this time, that is very gothic. To have an unreliable narrator, you know, recounting their days, you know, when they interacted with this person and what this person meant to them. It's definitely going off of Rebecca, but even more so, I think she's channeling Phantom Thread a little bit with what he does with Alma at the beginning and how she's talking about her relationship with Reynolds and we don't really exactly know when this is taking place in time. But I think as far as, like, that time period goes, everything was just so gross. I mean, you and I grew up then. Like, we remember it, of how you would dress. And I was so tan (laughs) all the time. And just, like, the outfits you would wear, those, like, Livestrong bracelets were horrible. The jeans are too long. The layered polos. The Juicy Couture velour sweats. And I think in, in setting it then and in having the characters wear this style of clothing... And then when you put them into Saltburn, so when Oliver has convinced, and we're going to be very light on spoilers here. I would say let's not spoil this because of when it's coming out. But um, when Oliver does end up going to Saltburn, one of my favorite things is seeing how the old and the new clash. Because the style of that time, the costumes of the characters, it almost doesn't look like they belong in this sort of massive, ornate estate. This kind of money just doesn't exist anymore, right? In these types of homes, you have to either be born into it or marry into it to access that level of wealth. And, you know, seeing them in sparkling bikini tops and caftans and just the house be kind of trashed with bags of crisps everywhere or little details like that, it, I think it creates this interesting juxtaposition of types of generational wealth and what the lives of the uber wealthy have been like throughout time. These old structures like Oxford, like Saltburn, have persisted, but the people inside of them have changed. But the wealth is passed down, right? It's generational. But yeah, I don't know. I, I thought that was an interesting interesting choice and it just means the music is good i love all of the indie music Mm -hmm. from that time period the block party and arcade fire well that's the awkward thing is mentioning low it's like it takes me back to those middle school high school dances where (laughs) it's just like you don't want to be there but the images on the screen and seeing jacob alordi felix with the angel wings on it's like you feel so conflicted watching so I think millennials <laughs> will have a very fun time watching that in that aspect. But 
talking about Mm -hmm. the wealth and all of that too part of what cued that in for me was oliver's name oliver quick oliver twist noting Mm -hmm. the dickens character and the commentary in that movie on like the social plight and his means of surviving and him as the narrator you can kind of see like oh felix takes him in and takes him to this estate and there are wonderful shots in this movie and one of the first ones of saltburn we get them walking through room after room after room i love this moment it's one of my favorite parts of the movie oh yeah that are so lush with details and there's so much history in each of those rooms you know the library is great Sandgren, you know, emphasizes how long this is and how many books there are and how old they are. So I think introducing the estate in that way, too, was just perfect. And you can understand how out of place Oliver feels and maybe what he wants to gain from it or why he's even there in the first place. Yeah, I really love love that scene where... Felix is taking Oliver through the house because it reminds you of, I said it was like a frat boy leading an architectural digest video because that's what it reminded me of. You know, he's going through the different rooms. Here's the blue room. It's blue. And it just, again, shows how they're also flippant about this level of wealth, Mm -hmm. how it's just normal to them. But Oliver is just like, whoa, what is this? How can I, you know, become a part of this? I don't belong here, but I want it. And that sort of desire, right, for that type of life and for Felix is all-consuming. And I think the ways that she plays with the obsession and desire are very dark. And will definitely shock some people, for sure, and be too much for others. But I found them to be very fun and things that you're just not used to seeing on screen before. And I like how before there's some core moments, again, that we won't spoil, that involve Oliver and how obsessed with Felix he is. The moments right before they happen, there's one that takes place outside, one that takes place in a bathroom. Those are the hints I will will share. I knew what was going to happen before she even showed it. It's not that it's not surprising, actually, because it is unexpected. I think that most people will find those moments to be unexpected but what it does in your mind is it makes you say why would I think that why would I assume that he would do something like that and then you see him do it and you're like oh she left the camera there other filmmakers pull the camera away or don't show that they leave it up to the imagination or you know let us maybe assume the worst or they make it a bit tamer but she doesn't and I think that's that's fun I really loved Rosamund Pike in this movie. I think she's so perfect as Elspeth Catton, the mother. She is the most unmaternal matriarch, I will say. She is obsessed with herself and doesn't really care about her children. She's always watching things that are going on and she'll just toss out these little throwaway lines about her past that are so funny. And I feel like Pike is the one who understands the humor of the movie best. She has the best lines. I mean, I think people will be quoting this all year, specifically what she says. Yeah, hearing her say, I was a lesbian for a while, but it was too wet for me in the end. Like, what? Just insane. Insane. Who is this woman? Personally, my favorite joke that she has is when she's talking about Britpop. Like, the entire Britpop thing. Like, Blur, Oasis, and everything. And she makes this great 
Jarvis Cocker pulp joke where she says something to the effect of like, oh, everyone thought common people, the song was about me when it came out, but I've never been to Greece and I've never wanted to know anything at all. <laughs> it's so good. It's so funny as like a play on the lyrics and how she is. And I just, yeah, I love her humor. I think she's great. Now, having seen it multiple times, though, I will say I don't think the movie's perfect. My number one issue with the movie is that she spells everything out in the end. I really wish she didn't do that. I wish she left it a little bit more ambiguous. However, the final sequence is so good. There's just so much we can't say. I know. That's the hard part. Like you mentioned the bathroom scene. And what I really love about it, again, no spoilers, but Oliver is standing on the right looking left then there's a later shot where he's in the same sort of position but they're outside and he's facing right so i love how they mirror certain moments in the film and literally where the characters are and the fact that i can only Mm -hmm. say that much is frustrating we need to do a spoiler filled deep dive at some point this is an after dark episode that needs to happen (laughs) this movie is made for after dark There's another moment with Elspeth later on in the movie that I knew was coming once the scene started, and it is as bad as I expected it to be. Again, the most vague thing I've ever said, but yeah, the final shot, I mean, it's incredible, and the very, very end, we see these puppets that they've shown earlier in the movie, and I love that. Even just like a little detail like that is shown again at the very end Mm -hmm. it's like a little shadow box it's a glass front and there are all these little puppets inside like little they look like wooden like marionettes almost Mm -hmm. but they're flat it's hard to describe but it's very cool it looks like this antique Mm -hmm. music box almost in a way and it says the cat and players at the top and all four of them sir james elspeth felix and venetia his sister, they all have their own, you know, mm-hmm. little puppet inside. This is very much not like the Janet Planet shadow box that we mentioned on the New York oh my episode. God. <laughs> this movie and Janet Planet, <laughs> night and day. A different kind of mother-daughter movie. But um, yeah, I think, you know, you saying it's not perfect. I think your initial high praise made me really excited. And I'm trying to balance that out for people because I think coming away there were certain things that were predictable with the story or some of the homoeroticism which is tied to the literature or these settings Mm -hmm. that I really wanted more from but I mean that's obvious and starting the movie with a narration of did I love him you know I kind of wanted or expected more (laughs) I know, but, but, and I did too, I did too, and we need to get a certain agent on the phone to maybe talk about specific clauses (laughs) in a contract. I'll just say that. But I think it's, no, it's fitting though in this story of obsession that, and this is getting into spoiler territory, that the character can't actually consummate that. That's a big deal in the gothic tradition. But you, you want that, but it effectively can't happen. Yeah. Because of the literature i mean she spins it enough again Fennell, to Uh push that boundary quite a bit but she is still beholden to the material that she developed this from i think i just love the material so much that i don't have issues with that (laughs) 
it's just so exciting to see like a new gothic mm-hmm. tale it's like you getting dune not to not to bring up dune again but really it's it's similar it's just so in my wheelhouse prolonging the inevitable for next year but no i think that's a good comparison for mm-hmm. sure yeah so how do you feel about saltburn's award potential this is really tough because I think this is just way too daring and out there for the Academy in a lot of ways. We said that about everything everywhere all at once, I guess, last year, but this is just not that. This is not a warm family <laughs> tale with a hug at the end. <laughs> it's quite the opposite. So it depends, though, because it's one of those movies where I think, again, like the people who love it will really, really love it. But is that enough for anything to really happen with it? I'm not sure. I am hoping that Rosamund Pike can get into supporting actress because that category, like we say every week now, is very up in the air. Barry Keoghan deserves to be considered for actor because I think he's absolutely fearless here. It's a really great performance. I love watching him in it. He's very surprising. And, you know, of course I love Jacob Elordi, too. I'd give him an Oscar nomination for just about anything. But I think I would still give the edge to his Elvis over his Felix. I feel like what he does in Priscilla is really good. I don't know. It's interesting, though. It's her follow-up to a movie that won her an Oscar. It's possible that they could go for it in categories like screenplay or... It could make its way into picture, but then you have to kind of think, you know, is it this year's Babylon or is it this year's Triangle of Sadness? Like, what kind of makes sense for it? I think it can definitely be its own thing. But yeah, I'm curious to see how it shakes out. But regardless, I think people, I think teenagers and 20-somethings are going to watch this the way that we watched Cruel Intentions and a number of other movies just on repeat. Really, I think they're going to love it. I would love to see Barry get some attention with critics, at least. I don't really see the Academy going for this in the big ways. And I think where it could, things are really crowded. So I would point to critics groups or more indie ceremonies to hopefully pick this up. Like you mentioned earlier, this won an audience award and Emerald Fennell has won multiple awards at different She's festivals. everywhere for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My thing with Promising Young Woman is, you know, that came out a few years ago and Me Too was much bigger at the time. So I think at least in response to that, the movie had a huge commentary on that or allowed people to speak about what the movie did in a good or bad way. Mm -hmm. That's my only thing there with screenplay when we see biopics get in or really original works that surprisingly work for the Academy. I do think it is a commentary on class. I think it is like an eat the rich movie. But I agree with what you're saying about when Promising Young Woman came out, that was just so, it was contemporary, it was of the time. This is not not that. It doesn't push buttons in the same way. Mm-hmm. I think it will make people upset. I think that's, that's, I think people will dislike this movie in the same way that they did that one. But it's not going to be a conversation starter in terms of politics. It's going to be a conversation starter in terms of sex, I think, and desire and what that looks like. You explaining it that way is kind of how I feel about The Killer and how I don't think that's an Academy movie either. It has these very strong opinions about capitalism, but it's almost so under the rug that seeing it recognized is so hard to envision at this point. Yeah, I think we'll see. We'll see what happens with this one. 
I'm curious if Fennell is out there going to every single film festival and doing all these Q&As. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> it could amount to nothing or something. Mm-hmm. We will see. But if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? So my Oscar is going to cinematography. I got read for yes. loving Good. long takes earlier. Mm-hmm. And this was <laughs> one of the first things I wrote down in the movie. There's one really early on when... Oliver gets to campus and we're walking around Oxford seeing this setting and seeing him in it and how unnatural it is and it was a little bit of a foreshadowing because we get multiple long takes throughout this movie and I think the colors the lighting I mentioned a club scene there are a few scenes that happen at night outside under moonlight and I think how it's shot is just exquisite I love getting certain canted angles which add this really mysterious Mm -hmm. element to where we are again certain vague explanations but I really liked how that set the stage for us and also in framing and how Oliver doesn't feel included and the camera is pretty far away but we also get some really sensual close-ups so he's kind of giving us everything here which I love what would your Oscar be Mm -hmm. yeah no I love his cinematography I love that boxy, tight aspect ratio, too. It reminds me of Instagram, like early Instagram, which I really liked. Another comment on obsession and accessing worlds that aren't available to us. I'll throw out that American Cinematheque in LA is doing a deranged double feature of Lena Sandgren films. This and La La Land. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're in LA, check that out. Yeah. But my Oscar would be supporting actress for Rosamund Pike because I think she's perfect in this movie. And every year there's a character that I'm obsessed with and she's the one for me this year. I feel, again, like she has the best handle on the humor of the movie. She's the person I think of when I think of this. I mean, Barry Keoghan is amazing too. I would Mm -hmm. consider him, but I I have to go with Pike. That's a predictable decision coming from me, but... I really, really do love her and her portrayal of Elspeth, this ice queen, which she's so good at. So good at. I love that. Well, that was our episode on Rustin and Saltburn. Definitely go see these movies. They're very different, Mm -hmm. but deserving in their own way. And we'll be covering more awards contenders later in the season and some more check-ins. Definitely go see Rustin and Saltburn and let us know what you think. Next time on Oscar Wilde, we have maybe our most anticipated episode of the year so far. Our fabulous friends, Connor and Dylan McDowell of the Drama Podcast, will be rejoining us on the pod. We have had them on before to talk about West Side Story and the 20th anniversary of Chicago. This year, we have a mega episode planned. It's an extravaganza. What started as the five-year anniversary episode of Bradley Cooper's 2018 directorial debut, A Star is Born, to celebrate his new film, Maestro, somehow turned into a discussion of the four versions of A Star is Born. So we will be talking about 1937, 1954, 1976, and 2018. And I cannot wait. This is going to be so fun. I have so many opinions, which only means that Connor and Dylan are going to have so many more. (laughs) And I Mm -hmm. am very excited. 
for what they have to say, how they feel about them, and we'll talk about rankings and all of the songs and obviously the stars. We had Judy Garland, Janet Gaynor, Barbara Streisand, Lady Gaga. These just huge icons from their time. So it really is going to be the biggest episode of the year. I think it's safe to say mm-hmm. already. Maybe of all time, dare I say. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Well, thank you all for listening. Feel free to rate, review, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Oscar Wilde Pod. And listen to bonus content on our Patreon at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.